Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey folks, welcome to this week's 1% Better episode and I am interviewing somebody that is in the, the world of food, I guess, and he's the second chef that I've had on the show in the 130 something episodes. The first was Nevin Maguire. So, so Mark, n- nothing too big to live up to here. I hope we don't put it un- under too much pressure there. No, not at all. I actually know Nevin quite well. He's, a, he's an actual gentleman and uh, one of the hardest working chefs I actually know and uh, someone I have a lot of respect and time for. Um, and also someone that uh, when when you go and see what he does and I, cause I know his head chef uh, previously and present, um, Carmel and um, he runs very, very good kitchen, so it's no secret that he's, he's actually quite successful. Yeah, he's a great guy. I'm happy to, to interview him a couple of years back. So, so Mark Anderson, welcome to the podcast. I did want to give you a proper introduction. Um, culinary director for Ireland at uh, Ga- Gar- is it Ga- Gator or Garther and Garther? Garther and Garther. Garther and Garther. Okay, so maybe tell me a bit about what you do there, because I'm interested from the research I've done, just to to learn a little bit more and share that with with the listeners. Yeah, sure, no problem. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'm a chef by trade. I have been oh for a long time now. I'm 49 this year, so I've been doing this kind of work since I was 18 or 19. So um, travelled quite extensively in my early years, um, and garnered as much knowledge as I could and information. Um, and worked my way through hotels, restaurants with some very talented and incredible chefs over the years and people that really inspired me and people that I swore that I'd never have kitchens like as well. So um, I took that on and then um, a while back when my, I, I've got twins who are now 20 when they were born, I made the decision to switch from hotels and restaurants and switch into workplace catering, which is what I do at the moment, which when you break it down is bigger kitchens than probably hotels and restaurants. In the, in the way of kind of volume. So, in the, the company I'm with at the moment, Gather and Gather, I'm going, I'll be in my sixth year in January, um, and I'm in charge, and I look after the food program that we run in about 20 different kitchens around, around mostly around Dublin, um, working with some of the top uh, companies in the tech sector or legal or in retail. So when you work in those kind of establishments, then, um, as well as the culinary knowledge um, and the camaraderie and working with your team, uh, you also tend to pick up a lot of what they do and how they behave and culturally what they do. Um, and so that was kind of about five years ago, I, I made a big conscious effort on taking those kind of learnings and put them into what we do. Um, and fundamentally, it's, it's very, very simple. <laughs> it's good produce and good good people, and that's what it is. It's no magic formula. That's what it really comes down to. But um, like everything simple, simple. It's, you'd be amazed how many people mess that up. So uh, we have a different, we, we, we'd like to think that we run very, very good kitchens, very good food programs, with great front of house team, great coffee programs, and the support uh, structure around that to deliver that. So for the last six years, that's what we do. On any given day, we could see close to 7,000 people in various different kitchens. So we tend to have a big influence on what people eat or how, they perceive food or what they uh, uh, what they actually put in their body. Mm. V- v- very very interesting, and I'm I'm definitely taken by from from following you online and kind of getting a good sense of of who you are. 
a little bit of a bit of background. I suppose I do like to go back and ask the person: Is this what you wanted to be when you grew up? And and I'm I'm fascinated to see, you know, where this kind of thirst for for learning and continuous improvement and looking at things not just looking at the food itself but the kind of ecosystem i suppose around it so so yeah maybe go back a little bit was it always what you had in you your aspirations to become a chef and to work in this world no and i'm not one of these people with these madly romantic stories of my grandmother used to grow apples and i used to make apple pie no, nothing like that for me and um, i started off watching this in a, in, a, in a restaurant in town and um, that my neighbor got me the job in when i was in school and um, so yeah, that's how I fell into it, and I kind of liked it. That was it, but I had no aspirations. I actually thought I was becoming a journalist or a policeman or um, something something along those lines. Um, academically, I feel I was, I was decent, got good grades. Um, but when I started working in the kitchens, washing dishes, um, I kind of liked the camaraderie, but I liked, I liked the spirit in the kitchen, and I liked a bit of laugh and a bit of, a bit of banter and creativity. Like back then, I, I'd be lying if I said we were, I was madly creative in what we were doing. You can't really do that. But I, but I like that sense of team, if you know what I mean. And I like that sense of kind of getting an instant response for what you do um, like when you put something on a plate. So I started washing dishes, as I said, in a restaurant. And then from there, I kind of gave them a hand doing very, very basic chopping and peeling of potatoes and onions and whatever else, all the whole jobs that most people don't want to do and um, fell into that and decided that well actually this wasn't bad but my parents had always said you can do whatever you want in life but you need to get something around yourself from an education point of view so they said this is what you want to do go and apply to do college so we applied to do hotel and catering management um, and didn't get that but I got offered um, uh, a full-time course in, in Cattle Brewery Street as I was there CIC to go and do chef and so I spent Two two and a half two years in there doing um doing my doing my um my papers and um yeah just got to like it just got to love it actually um and then from there I moved to Scotland and worked over there and then down in London and spent some time out in San Francisco Miami and around Europe uh, traveling and uh, came back to Ireland then went back to London and came back to Ireland so all the time I was working in different kitchens and picking up skills and the thing that kept it's, I mean, it's a tough trade. I'm not going to lie. It's not an easy trade. But um, as I said to someone there the other day, it's the best job I know. I've never really been out of work. I've never really had to apply as I got further up the chain for a job. I've met some amazing people, um, both who I cook for and also in kitchens. Um, I've built some great friendships. Um, I've, seen a, I've seen a good bit of the world. Um, and I get to be creative, um, and I get to work with really, really cool people on a daily basis. So I don't know many other jobs that's like that. Um, and I get a bad rep at times, which I think is very unfair, uh, because, you know, I, I, was, I was remember a very good uh, chef called Danny Barry saying to me that, well, you never see anything on TV like the Great British Accountant. It was really cool to be a chef for everybody to have an opinion on food. Hence the reason I think it's very easy to knock the trade and the industry, which has its demons and has things that isn't right, but is also trying to tackle that and has a lot of good points as well. So, yeah, I've enjoyed, I've loved what I've done over the years. Um, and when I moved into workplace catering as I got older um, and wanted to change from hotels and restaurants, that really helped develop the business side of my brain as regards 
you know, kitchens run and contracts and uh, finances and P&Ls, all of that kind of stuff. That really, really helped me. That because you run each kitchen as your own business. That's what's working for the company. Um, but as that got on further, and that was really, really well. I got a lot, a lot involved in um, how we sell those businesses. Like, I mean, when I say sell, how we can pitch for a contract and how, how that works. So I, I got, I got a real interest in that as well. So that really, that really kind of kept me going. and kept me, kept the passion going as well. Because you get a chance to do lots of other things, not just cook, and um, which brought me all along the way to kind of where I was two years ago when I joined Gather and Gather. Where I felt um, I could really put my own stamp on the food program, and what we did, um, and I recruited some absolutely amazing chefs who worked with me, who come from very various different backgrounds. So I suppose when you said about personal knowledge, I wanted to always, without being egotistical, saying like I knew what I knew about food, and it was quite a bit, and it was enough to get me by. But what else could I do to kind of help run multiple kitchens and multiple sites and the way? The way the world has changed and the way people learn and the way people take on information has changed from when I was, when I was in um, learning and I was in college. So how could I help kind of get them to buy into what we wanted to do um, in Ireland? So I went back to college last year and did sports psychology. Um, and this year I'm doing executive life coaching with neuroscience. And, you know, that's all to help me understand, uh, A, how you, the language you use, how you communicate, how you how you kind of make those connections with people, how you get them to kind of perform at their best and how you can also help them um, to perform at their best. So, yeah, and that's where I am at the moment. Mm. Very interesting to just listen to your progressive journey over over the years. And do you ever kind of stand now and, and look back and say, wow, I, this is, you know, I can't believe where this has brought me over that period of time when you maybe go back to the time when you started out washing dishes? It's funny, um, because I never really, I never really did that, and I think it's shifting where we're probably, we probably don't do an awful lot of work with our, on ourselves as individuals. So we can go off and educate ourselves in college on lots of different things when it comes to learning skills around cooking and, for, and how to run a kitchen. You can do that's a beat the band, and there's tons of um, opportunities there. But but as individuals, I I don't haven't come across many of them. That I've actually done any work and helping and developing ourselves as people, which makes us better, better chefs and better, better leaders. So the big thing for me was about leadership, and it's only in the last two years or two and a half years I've actually started to take stock of some of the achievements that I've done and go, kind of oh wow, that that is pretty good. Um, and I think it's it's probably an Irish thing as well, like where you're afraid to put yourself on any kind of pedestal because there's a lot of people always quick to put you back down. But in the last few years now, as my kids are in college and you come to a different stage in your career in your life. Yeah, it's it's cool to it's cool to reflect and it's cool to look back and see what you've done. Both both the mistakes that you made, I guess just as much enjoyment out of the mistakes that I made that I learned from to the successes. And it was interesting I was talking to a group of students in college there about two or three weeks ago and I was asked a really interesting question and I was asked, What was I still still afraid or scared of? And it kinda of caught me for a second, but it got me thinking and the only answer it could come up, and it's still, and I suppose which is a big drug, I was I was afraid that I was going to not make a difference. Not in some, I don't know, egotistical way of I was going to be the best chef in the world. But I wanted to have kitchens where people that work in our kitchens, that not just directly for me, but with the chefs that we have or the front of house people, I wanted that we would make a positive impact, that, a difference, that they would go on and help 
um, have the same kind of kitchens with that positive outlook and an inclusive and progressive and wanting to do the right thing. So that's the thing that's been driving me in the last later years of my life, or sorry, not my life, but my career in the last few years, is making sure that we make that positive difference, both personally and as a business, so that we know that we're doing the right thing. Because I'm a firm believer, if we get that right, um, us and other businesses that will behave the same, the same way, we can make such a difference. I think we're at a tipping point in Ireland when it comes to the food scene. We have some amazing produce, some incredibly talented chefs in this country. And if we keep going, pushing that, and keep promoting and keep working those kind of positive stuff um, and promoting those kind of kitchens, we'll have such a very, very strong food culture. Brilliant. Yeah, and as somebody that's done the coaching diploma a few years ago myself and what what that journey brought me through was that whole self-reflection and kind of getting to know yourself better as you've gone through that and you've got to know yourself better uh, and continually improving there what are some of the surprising things that you learned about yourself maybe that you know were blind spots anything come up for you there boundaries boundaries has been a big thing there's a couple of big things language and the language that you use and how that has a big impact without you really know and um, what you may say is a flip and a throwaway remark. How can that be taken and interpreted? So that was a couple. That was a couple of years ago. Um, simple things like you have to keep things really simple, um, because it, like if you're trying to deliver a message and it takes it takes longer than a few minutes, you'd have lost your audience, and it means that you don't understand what you're really talking about yourself. So simplifying things, what we do, breaking it down so we understand and take and point towards what we need to achieve. Um, language, as I said, has been a big thing. Um, boundaries this year has been a big, a big learning for me. Um, you know, understanding what your principles and your values, and this is the same for business. If you understand what your principles and values, and you really live them and show up and rock them, um, you'll be in a good place and, and you'll be successful no matter what you're doing. It's when you get, it's when, if you set boundaries around them and, and you stick to them, and it means that you're focusing on what's really, really important to you or your business in values and your principles. It's when you let those boundaries get kind of stressed or, or, or people take advantage of it, then you get diluted in what you want to do. And it doesn't make you happy because you end up doing things that you don't want to do. Or you end up um, focused on things that don't that you don't really want to do. Hence your, your whole attitude changes toward it and your, your enthusiasm changes towards it. So a, a big thing for me is setting realistic boundaries and really, really working on my values and principles and my language and what I use. Mm. and doing that in a conscious way certainly the language piece i totally can connect in all of what you said is very uh, apt but but the language piece how one word change can have such an impact on how somebody perceives what you're saying but also what what they're saying what they're saying about themselves where you know i've often used the example of wanting versus uh, having versus getting to you know and giving kind of a different positive spin and versus a negative spin on it just changing that one word on the, on the values piece have you brought the kind of values setting into your current role with the people you work with to kind of create that kind of common set of team values and um, principles there yeah we like, I mean we, we we do a lot of that um, in, the, uh, in the fact that um, we had we we have a set of parameters and principles that we all work through as a business, um, and you know, and they're non-negotiable. But in each kitchen, we, we try to get the we try to get the team to 
build our own kind of mission statement, even though we don't, don't call it things like mission statements, because not a lot of people, not a lot of people get that, and they think it's too so corporate that they don't buy in. So we get them to come up with their own kind of set of uh, words or agenda that they hold themselves accountable to. And what are, what we encourage them to do is that whether it's someone that's washing the dishes or someone who's in charge of the kitchen or someone who's managing the store out front or, or the general manager for that place, they all have the equal enough power or authority to call each other out if they're not behaving that way. And that, that, that's been really, really good for us because that really drives accountability that even when you're not there, you know they're doing the right thing. So if you're making, I don't know, if you're making soup, you're making a dish, that don't take shortcuts because we know that's not what's expected of us. Um, and someone who's starting out in their career or someone at a further stage in their career, they've all got the equal authority to call each other out if you see someone taking shortcuts as a matter of it, as, as a matter of it. Um, as a, as a matter of fact, also like I mean, everybody goes on about sustainability, and we we do that so really, really we do that really really well. We don't just pay a list service, and we also look at sustainability around our people, how we look after them. So we we do a lot of um kind of development with them and training and master classes, and with some incredible chefs that come into the that come into our business as guests on the day and deliver um deliver master class. So we do lots of work for people to try to show them that you know. This job is really, really good and you can learn so much. And just because you're in the kitchen doesn't mean that you've got all these other skill sets that you can touch upon. And I think the big thing for me is, and, and, I'm, and to get my head around this, developing the soft skills. Um, I, read a, I read a really interesting article and I've seen something on them and it said that about empathy being the next big thing that a leader has to develop and has to have in their, um, in their locker. And I totally buy into that. And um, again, I remember when, I, I was talking to one of my chefs and I said, like, if you look at the young chefs that are in our business, they learn in a very different way than how we learn. When I was standing in the kitchen, you were thrown in the corner of the kitchen, not literally, but given bags of eggs and onions and told to peel them. And when you got to a certain level, then you might move on to something less mundane. Uh, chefs and all that now, and people that are coming into kitchens, they learn very differently. They, they, they kind of, they're all of that social media. They're all very savvy. They all must know going in the world. If I wanted a recipe when I was starting out, and um, it was a pen and paper and having to find someone to give it to me. If I want that same recipe now, within 30 seconds, I'll have probably 200 on my phone by just Googling it. So we've had to, we have to change how we teach. We have to change how we encourage and how we mentor. Um, and they're, you, they're all the skills that now I think a leader and a head chef or an executive chef or a senior chef in the kitchen is a leader. They're the skills that we need to work on and develop if, um, if we're going to progress. Absolutely, and uh, you, you know, all the points you've made are almost transferable to any business or industry or, or, or profession. I think at this stage, with the new workforce coming in, having that social media connectivity, and you know, a different just how how they learn is certainly different. Very interested in the areas of culture and and, and innovation, and I think they're very much overlapping. But f- from the outside looking in, if I hear the word culture and chefing or kitchens, you would, I would, probably me and others would think a very tough environment, uh, cutthroat, you know, shouting and roaring and, and just difficult. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in the work you're doing in that Sounds space. Sounds a lot like a boardroom, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely even worse than a boardroom. But then that's kind of the persona that you see from like the, the Gordon Ramsays and all of that sort of stuff. That's that's an easier sell for the media. Like that's that sells papers or 
using TED programs because no one wants to tell you when I speak and whatever you're walking by together. I can tell you now, and um, in my years and my experience, um, I've been doing this like since I was 18 and I'm now 49. I have come across two kitchens like that in all those times. So, um, does it exist and is it still out there? Of course it is. Is it in building sites? Yes. Is it in uh, is it in other businesses? Uh, yes, it is. It, it's the same problem. It's not unique to Shetton, but it is something that has to be addressed. So, you know, and, and I, I hear numerous businesses and industry talking about culture and all like that. And when you scratch away the surface, it's lip service. And it can be the same set of cases. So it's no different. Um, to me, culture has to be what you do every day, no matter who's watching and how you behave and how you I think it's probably in kitchen, my own affection feeling, if you look at kitchens, I think if the culture isn't there, it's so, it's so much easier and so much quicker because people just don't stay. You don't, and your restaurant isn't busy. Your, the chefs leave, front of house people, waiting staff leave, no one wants to walk there. The product that you produce, because it's so creative, isn't good. So I just, I think it's very easy to spot somewhere that has that kind of bad culture or that kind of effort. Um, and listen, this is a tough trade. It's not easy. Um, and it's pressurized and it's physically demanding. Um, and it's stressful because, you know, that's the nature of the business. But I've worked with some incredible chefs um, who've done so many good and positive things in their kitchen um, and are still in business. I've worked with chefs that um, don't win all the accolades and all the awards, but are doing so much to nurture people. Um, and train them and develop them. And I've worked with people. And, and when you work in the food game, when you work, your skill set can, can, can help so many other people in, you know, in other sectors, whether be it growers or producers or whoever it may be. So you really have a lot of power. And I remember being at uh, Food the Edge, a symposium down in Galway, like JP McManus house, in its fifth or sixth year. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable to see some of the top chefs in the world and hearing some people talk about as a collection of of people that chefs, we have so much power to influence what people do and how they eat and everything else. So culturally, we have to behave in the right way to do that. So we can protect small artisan growers that's going to fantastic project or the cheese maker or the people in the dairy or people with the cattle. So culture is really, really important. And yes, I know um, the stigma and the image out there isn't always positive, but there's also lots of really, 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 really good stories happening. That probably don't make the media. Yeah, and it's interesting just what what you said earlier on. That they don't make TV shows about uh, accountants, right? So it's kind of it kind of ties in with that, and uh, they definitely there's definitely bollocking and rollicking going on in offices as well, right? So it's not a uh, it's not just. Hundred and, and you know what the funny thing is, like I mean, everybody wants to watch the program where a chef is shouting and roaring, so they can have an opinion. And everybody wants to watch the, the 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 various different bake off programs and uh, master chef programs, which are great. So they all have an opinion, and they all become experts in building. No other program about very other industries like that. Yeah, but 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 as you said, those shows are great for the industries, just getting people attracted to work in in that world as well. I'd, I'd imagine. Yeah, they have. They've been. They've, I mean. When I when I went to college, I remember um, a relative saying to my mom, "Oh, your son mustn't be very good at college. He's got or at school. 
he's going to be a chef. <laughs> you know, you're kind of saying that's that's the image it was years ago. And if you look at the skill set that's needed to run a kitchen or be a chef, you need to be financially savvy. You need to be able to do recruitment and HR. You need to manage stock levels. So you need to have a procurement aspect to your business. And you need to be able to um, you need to be able to motivate, and you need to be able to kind of lead and mentor teams. So you need a leadership aspect to your business. Um, and and the cooking is the easy bit. Um, everything else that goes on is um, it's it's very very different than it was. So the image of a chef that's coming in now is very different than it was now. And I think the whole celebrity chef TV programs and media has definitely led to um, the image probably the, the image of a chef being a lot more. I don't know, a bit better than it was when I started. Sure, more attractive to, to get people into it, I'd imagine. Uh, talking about culture and some of the coaching work you've done, do you have any practices or uh, tools you use in, in your work environment to help develop a culture that could potentially be replicated in any other line of work? Well, I do. I, I've, I've been very lucky over the years that I've, I've done a lot of long work in school by football, and I find the same thing about uh, team dynamics um, and the uh, tools and work that you can do, you can deal with that work in kitchen as well as as with uh, football clubs or with those kind of teams. So I, I try to uh, like I try to do an awful lot about that. I I try and do an awful lot of work around empowering people to make um, I don't know make their own decisions and live and, and live and work with them. So they've always worked with me. And um, I do an awful lot of stuff around. Kind of visualizing, uh, visualization as regards like what we want our kitchen to look like, how we want to perform, how we want to sound, how we want to look and feel. Like so, a lot of lot of words that we kind of work on. So I do an exercise with someone and say, okay, how do we want our kitchen to look? How do we want it to feel? How do we want to sound? And getting people to use those kind of really empowering kind of beliefs and those kind of words um, that kind of resonate with them and make them say, yeah, actually this is really good. Actually, this is what we want to do. So I do a lot of work with that and. Um, Again, the whole use of language and how we and how we do that, um, and how and how we talk to each other, and how we and I, I really hate emails. I just think emails are a cop out, um, so I much prefer to have those conversations one to one with people, so you can so there's nothing lost in translation and in a message, even though I'm guilty of sending loads of emails myself. So and a bit of a contradiction there, um, and you know, like leadership has been big for me, so having to Except sometimes you don't know it all, and um, you need to kind of go and stick your hand up and say, "Okay, guys, what do we think here?" Um, that that really worked for me. Kind of tackling problems quickly so that we don't let things fester, and defining roles and responsibilities for people so that they know um, they know what's expected of them and what and what we expect and they expect of us. And the big thing for me is it's always been about communication. I, I mean, sometimes it's about just sitting there. And, you know, when you walk in, it's not asked, it's asked some stuff about how it work, how things are home, how things, you watch the game last night, you know, building and making that connection so that they know that you have invested in it. Mm. The word feedback just came into my mind that I was just wondering how you deliver feedback to, to the team one-to-one collectively. How, how does that work and how, how do you kind of help each other Grow and identify weak weak spots and development areas. Well, I mean, listen, it's the same as well as you're coaching football. It's never a mistake once you learn. 
So that's the premise I've always worked in. And feedback, once it's open and honest and you take the emotion out of it, um, I think is always to be welcomed. I, I, I mean, no one, no one likes to be told. I, I don't know anybody that goes to work to actually do a bad job. So you would, you have to kind of consider that in a first and foremost. Everybody's there trying to do their best. We're not robots, we're not machines, but sometimes mistakes and things don't, things that things happen that don't stand supposed to be. So how do we best do that? Okay, well, what did we get wrong and how did we get that wrong? Okay, and what have we learned out of that? And uh, it's not about individual blame, it's about a collective. Okay, we weren't looking out for each other, that's there, but we didn't get that right because X, Y, and Z, or listen, I was under pressure that section, and you know, I, I just ended up brushing things and I cut corners. So then that reflects on the whole kitchen that we didn't we didn't act in a responsible way to look out for each other. And um, so feedback, feedback, we get feedback every day, and that's the thing about of chef and you get instant feedback. As soon as you put that plate across the counter, um, the reaction kind of says it all even before people have started eating. You can tell by people's faces where they're going, oh, I don't like to look at this, or oh, wow, that's what's amazing. And then, you know, a lot of our clients and customers are very quick to come back, given the type of business they were in, and tell us what they thought. And we really welcome that because there's no point in telling me or letting me think that we're doing a good job if we're not, because we'll just keep doing the same thing. So feedback is really, really important. But it has to be constructive, and it has to be open, and it has to be honest. And it can't be these sweeping statements. I hate all that, where someone says, oh, it, it was rubbish. What's rubbish? Everything was rubbish. So you really have to drill down to, well, what do you mean by that? What, you know, when that's a strong statement, what, what are you saying? What do you mean? How do you define this? So, and, and we usually find it something stupidly thin um, that we can fix. So we try to take the emotion out of it. We make it open and honest. And, and we involve kind of, not just one person. So um, everybody kind of gets, okay, well, I think we could have done this better. Or, you know, I think we, next time, maybe we use a different cut of meat because it'll work better. Or, you know, maybe we need to position it better in the menu so people understand. So those kind of things. Mm. Interesting stuff. And in, in my work in, in IT and in coaching and I suppose just in business more so, it's the whole area of user experience or customer experience is very, very important popular now and i think that's probably catching up with the likes of your word right because the customer experience has to be is very tangible instantly as you said um how, how do you I suppose measure measure that or is there when you talk about continuous improvement as well how do you put measures in place to make sure things are moving forward um, and, and a lot of the restaurants that we run the cafes and the workplace will have We'll have uh, food groups which we re- meet me- 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 regularly with. We'll have the usual KPIs and QBRs that we have to adhere to and meet. Um, and um, the simplest and most effective way we find of getting feedback to find out if we're on the right track of making new things is that conversations over the counters and, and when we're serving. And um, people are always happy to give an opinion or tell us what they think. Um, and you know, like I think feedback is a skill to give but it's also a skill to understand and listen. So you need to listen to what people are saying. And that's, that's a big thing as well. That, like, you have to listen properly. Like those sweeping statements when you ask the right questions. So we always try and say, okay, that's fantastic. What, 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 what can we tweak about the dish or how can we make that a better? And sometimes it's not even about changing the dish, but it's the process of how we got that dish there and how have we been efficient? Um, are we still buying the same kind of kit or is there other ways we can look at things? from a more sustainable point of view. So there's lots of things that come into that when we're trying to improve. 
And then sometimes it's a case of, okay, we're really, really happy with that dish and how it looks, how it presents and everything else. What can we do maybe visually to make that better? Or the big thing at the moment for me is how can we communicate the message of how that got to the plate, like where we buy our food. There's some amazing small artisan producers that we use and the story that they have. Like, um, I mean, how do we sell that? So it mightn't be about improving the actual dish. It might be some of the items that we need to improve around, it, whether it be communication, letting people know the story, or even just kind of encouraging people to um, experiment and forget them to try things. What's the biggest kind of threat you're facing in in the the industry in in your line of business at the moment? What 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 are your kind of keeping you awake at night or areas that you have to keep your eyes on most? Um, there's lots of different things at the moment. There's, there's obviously a shortage of chefs. Um, I'm very lucky that we don't seem we okay, and that's I mean this in a, in a, we don't really have that at the moment. We 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 our challenge will be getting people at entry level coming in so we try to train and develop people that are coming in maybe washing dishes or working as general assistants. we try to take them and train them and develop them into early, uh, early on into becoming chefs so we always have that succession plan going on and we find that works really really well for us because um, if we get people in and they're washing dishes and they're doing that really really tough job um, they take quite a bit of pride in that we'll know that when we get them and we get them into chef work and we start working and try to develop a skill set then they have a good basis and understanding of what kitchens are like. So the chances of them sticking out are a lot better. So we do a lot of work with that um, because there is a shortage of chefs and people coming into the business, which, again, I don't think the likes of the media and all that will be help. Uh, we do an awful lot, um, a lot of challenges. I mean, the whole thing around breakfast, there's a whole challenge there about how that's going to affect the business and the economy and everything else, and we'll see you come. So we'll cross that bridge when eventually they get to decide what the hell they're going to do there. Um, and a big thing for me would will be like there's so many different fads and trends and trade going on in food at the moment, and um, it's very easy to get distracted. So we have to keep refocusing on getting the basics right, respecting our produce, respecting our kitchen and our people that are working there, and being really really creative. And um, so it's not getting distracted by all those other all the other stuff that goes on around us. How do you develop creativity in the line of work? How how does that kind of grow and prosper? I suppose that's that's not a challenge for me. Um, I mean, okay, you, you, you chefs do get writers' block, I suppose, as the best way of some when they do get to a stage where they're writing menus all the time. But creativity is really easy, easy for us because, and I mean, when I say this, we get such good produce coming in the back door of our kitchen to work with that it genuinely really excites um, our chefs in the kitchen about what we're going to do with this. Um, and, so, and, our, and because we change our menus every day and because the type of business that we have, we've got so much going on, we be it at events um, or um, executive dining or just, you know what I mean, like, I mean, if it's celebrating something like, I don't know, Thanksgiving or Christmas or if it's got St. Patrick's Day where we're showcasing the best of Irish food or if it's like there's every week or every month now there seems to be a theme or something going on so our it's, it's creativity isn't really an issue for us and um, it's managing that creativity that the, you don't want to put a stop on it but you want to make sure that they're still doing the right thing without being gimmicky mm. 
Interesting. Very interesting. So learned a lot about what you do in, in the day job, I guess, there, Mark. What I'm interested as well is, I think when we did connect, I noticed um, the event you put on in Dublin, I think it was in September, um, with Dan Abrahams, Steve Salas, Des Ryan, Stephen Lynch, I think were the four guys, and obviously yourself involved. Again, touching on coaching, sport, uh, psychology, fascinated about what I suppose brought that about. Um, obviously, your interests, but what made you put that whole thing together? Um, stupidity. Um, no um, bravery. Yeah, I wasn't busy enough doing other things. Now I'll, I'll tell you. Um, so I suppose I go back a couple of steps there. Um, when my son started to play football in in Arklow in Wicklow, and um, I got involved in a really, really great community club called Arco United. Um, and again, I was one of these parents that was standing at the sideline one day and was asking me to see Now, as a mad Glasgow Celtic fan, um, and very, like every other parent or every other person that watches football, being an armchair expert, I thought, yeah, no problem. But over the years doing that, I learned so much about myself doing it. Um, because kids are very, very, a great way of leveling it. But I really enjoyed it. But I wanted to learn. I suppose I approached it a bit like a discussion. If I was going to manage or work with these kids, I'd take the team out. I wanted to make sure that it was as professional a setup as we could do. So I went off and did some of my coaching badges through the FAI. I got contacted there. I got a connection with Glasgow Celtic and built up a really good, strong uh, relationship and friendship there and got them into the club. Uh, so some of their coaches were coming over and doing coach education with us. So I, my, my my theory was, if we made our coaches better, our coaches would make the kids better. And um, so early on, people like Dan Abrams and what he did always kind of struck a chord with me. Um, as you know, okay, again, a bit like food. I know what I know about football, and that's great. But how can I walk in the other stuff? And I walked. I was very lucky to meet a guy in Glasgow Celtic called Martin Miller and a couple of other guys called Greg Warburton and William McCabe and John McStay. He kind of taught me a lot about what they did with academy level and not just technically and practically, but like I remember Martin saying that they treat every kid as a project and they kind of armed them with this imaginary backpack um, that they fill with experience so that at any given time in their life, these kids can reach into that backpack and pull out something that they've learned, and hopefully um, it'll stand for them. And that really struck a chord with me. So that took me on the path, and um, as the kids I took from 8 up to 18, um, and I remember bringing in a guy called William Terrell, who's my best mate, um, who's played at the highest level in Ireland and done really, really well. So I got him to work on the kids as they got older, football-wise, and I kind of took it upon myself to do as much as I can, kind of, with them kind of with a headspace and that's I don't mean like in a professional way but just trying to work with them on their confidence and their mindset and small stupid things and um, so I got to I, I got to do that and that that worked really 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 well and then I went off and I did a, a sports psychology and I absolutely loved it absolutely loved it um, and Dan Abrams I, I follow him actively and I remember I, I took a punt and I went out to Chicago to the North American Soccer Conference um, Federation meeting last year and met Dan in person and got a chance to speak to him and said I'd love to have you do something in order and he said yeah definitely agreed in principle so that was the start of the last January and then I said okay what am I going to do because again I wanted to make a difference 
Um, so I reached out to Steve Salas because I heard him on Dan's podcast and I read his book and I thought it was brilliant. Um, then I wanted someone from a sports psychology point of view, or, sorry, from um, a sports science point of view and Des Ryan, who's done an awful lot of work in rugby in Ireland and was with Arsenal. Um, I've done some research and he's very, very highly regarded. Stephen Lynch, who actually worked in LinkedIn and his journey and who's played in schoolboy football. Um, he was a natural choice to bring because we were hosting it there. Um, and that was the start of it. And that was, that, that's kind of where I got to. And then it was a case of, well, what do we want this to be about? Um, and the FAI and all that do all their fantastic courses around um, all the UEFA license badges and their own badges. I wanted this to be something different that would both work for sport and for business. So I wanted people to be able to say, okay, at the highest level, and with these guys and people that they've worked, what skills and what what do they use to get the most out of them? So Dan spoke about his game face. And, you know, that's the same on football pitches, boardrooms, or kitchens. Preparation and what to do. And he spoke about visualization. Um, and, um, you know, I do that a lot. I was very lucky for the last few years to work with Bray Wonders under 15s and under 17s League of Ireland with a great, great bunch of guys um, who, uh, who coach and manage there. Um, Gavin Teen and Nick Brown and Paul Early and uh, you know myself and William and a couple of others that were there and I was very lucky and to learn from them as well and I used some of that what Dan spoke about with the team there and I just found that really really good and really useful and then when Steve spoke about um, as a, his, his role as a teacher and the skills that he's acquired as a teacher that helped him become a better educator in football I found that really really interesting and then Des and a real proper holistic approach and organic approach that they take to sports science at Arsenal was just, it just blew me away. So I just found it, you know, it just really struck a chord with me and it was very successful. It was my first one. I had over a hundred people at it and the feedback for it was excellent on it. So I was really proud and it's got me looking. I've been, I'm, I'm in a position now where I've, I've had a few people reach out and say, listen, we'd love to be part of one of you were doing it again. A couple of guys that are working out in the States, which I think would be really interesting. And um, Dan's expressed an interest in Des and Steve as well, and a couple of other people. So, yeah, um, it's something I'm looking, if I can get a venue to try and do something now, maybe January. Mm. Very cool, yeah, no, definitely. I think that's sort of bringing those people together. There's definitely an interest and uh a desire for people to learn and dig into the world of psychology and behaviors and uh, certainly apply it to to work as well as um as well as sport i had dan on on the show a couple of weeks ago as a result of you uh having that uh, event and um there's so many overlaps you know with what he's talking about in his world and what we do in kind of uh business and i mean i've been guilty of this myself i put my hand up i think the easy thing the easy thing is to go onto social media, download an image or a, a graphic or a poster saying something that someone has tweeted or something and say, oh, that's it. I'm going to stick that up in the dressing room or in the kitchen or in the boardroom next week and that's going to be sports psychology tackle. That's going to be everybody's going to buy into this. Um, and we all great. And it doesn't work that way. Um, so when you listen to Dan and you listen to these people uh, talk and you understand, or sorry, you try to understand or get an insight into the work that has to go into developing your muscle of your brain is so just as important as everything else that we do. And you've got so many people that spend hours at the gym working on their body and their shape and their physical, which is so important. But no one's really doing that work 
or are we really doing that work on our brain, which is just as important. So yeah, it's been a big for me. It it, it was a kind of a big eye opener. I probably bore people the way I go on about it all the time, but I just think it's really important. No, it is, and it's passion, right? So there's no stopping passion kind of coming to the fore when you're interested, in, and, and you obviously are. Uh, it it uh, it'll drive you forward, and hopefully a second one comes along. And yeah, definitely, I'll happily um, share more about that when when and if uh, it's scheduled. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think down in Cork as well. Something I wouldn't mind putting something similar on in the near future. Um, there's there's an audience potentially down here as well. It's been a, a really interesting listen or look into your world, into how how you operate, some of the approaches that you're uh, driving forward on. And as I said, the word passion came up a lot, so we can totally detect that from from you. And yeah, it's great to see you know something. Um, moving in the right direction in, in the areas that you're working in so thanks for, for sharing that Listen, I hope you got something out of it No absolutely and I'm sure others will as well just to wrap it up is there any any ways folks can get in touch if maybe somebody's listening and have a story to tell maybe a potential speaker at a future event you know they can get in touch how could they do that I'm on social media as you would expect you can get me on LinkedIn if you just search for Mark Anderson and uh, you'll see my ugly mug appear somewhere there. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Marky01. Um, and my email address is, I'll give you uh, my personal one because it's easier to rhyme out. It's andersonmark1970 at gmail.com. Perfect. I'll put those into the notes at the end so folks can follow up. And we leave it there, Mark. Thanks so much. I'm glad we got to do this. I know we've been talking about it for a while, but uh, we got there in the end, and I look forward to sharing it. Super, Rob. Thanks very much and keep up the great work. Thanks a lot, Mark. Good luck. So this is the outro of the podcast, guys. You got to the end and that is great. Please hang in here for another couple of minutes. I know most people won't, but maybe there's something here of interest. So check this out. First off, thanks so much for listening to this one, as well as maybe the hundred or so that's gone before it. Why not check them out if you haven't already? There's lots of good stuff in there. The whole podcasting journey for me has been a huge learning and I'm trying to help you guys learn and improve as well. So much has changed over the last few years since I started it. I've really realized lots of the goals that I put out there and then realized so many unexpected benefits as well. And I think anytime you take on action towards a goal, you're going to pick up lots of things that you didn't expect along the way and hopefully they're good things. In this particular episode, was there any one or two things that jumped out? Maybe you could take a pen and paper out right now because this is something that you might think of during the episode but never do. Do it now. Take it out. Write down a goal that you're going to set yourself as a result of something you learned from this episode. Put a plan in place and then work towards it applying yourself deliberately over time, take ownership, build a habit, improve, get 1% better, share accountability with somebody you know in a buddy system and learn and grow and improve. That's what it's all about. That's my hopefully inspirational piece done. Other areas to note, check out the website robofthegreen.ie. You can consume everything there for free. There is obviously the podcast, there's video, one minute Monday clips, there's articles, uh, not enough, but I'd like to put more there if you're interested in putting one there let me know and there's a get better at page which i'm starting to add new content to over time there's a feedback page if you want to email me rob at rob of the instead but it's all about trying to engage you and 
get you to a place of improvement so i'm open to feedback as i said ways you can help me is by following me on the socials at rob of the green.ie is the website or at rob of the green and all the social platforms subscribe to the podcast on any of the apps that you might listen to it on talk about it tell a friend about it tell your family members about it share some of the ideas not only to your friends but to me is there anything i can improve upon sign up to the newsletter that's there as well i'm experimenting again with a group called slack rob of the green on slack this is really for a shared accountability environment and sharing ideas you can sign up to that on the website as well all of this is obviously all free but there is also an option where you could subscribe to my patreon site and make a small donation for the content that we do it's there it's totally up to you everything that is coming in through that or could come in through that will go into making the podcast better so to close i am always trying to improve and get better change is difficult i know that but it's all about taking the first step learning something applying yourself moving forward you can do this i've been able to improve pushing myself outside the comfort zone learning and i think if i can do it so can you don't overreach don't set yourself unrealistic goals one percent at a time is enough but it's all about starting and that will bring you on your pursuit of betterness to a great place. Thanks for sticking to the very end. Talk to you next time and take care. Good luck.